You know, our next guest didn't realize that she had a problem with an eating disorder. She thought she just struggled with her weight and just didn't have enough willpower, something that I think a lot of us feel from time to time. It took a year of therapy and being confronted by a global pandemic before she began to see just what the problem truly was. You know, whether you're battling something similar or you know someone who is or just wants to educate themselves about what people with eating disorders experience, this next episode may be for you. That's up next on Recovery Talks, the podcast. Direct from Akron, Ohio, the epicenter of modern recovery. This is Recovery Talks, the podcast. From those in recovery to those working in recovery, meet those who are shining the light on Recovery Talks right now. Welcome, everybody, to this episode of Recovery Talks, the podcast. My guest today is Rachel Pollock, and Rachel has written a book that is super cool. It's called Be Well, Be Whole, and Be Free. And she talks about her journey and finally accepting that she had an eating disorder. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. But first, let me just say, hi, Rachel. Thanks for being here with us. Hi, thanks for having me. So cool. So there's a lot that I want to unpack with this. But as we get started, I just kind of want to maybe just have you describe for me how you would describe the disorder. For me as an alcoholic and an addict, I, I get it. I can, I, I, I can describe for you, you know, hey, it was when, you know, I told myself I wouldn't do it and then I couldn't not do it. And B, once I started, I couldn't stop. So the one thing about eating disorders that is the same for everyone is that they're different for everyone. That's why it can be so hard to actually identify and realize that that's what I was struggling with. It took me a long time. But the way my eating disorder presented itself was restricting food intake, not eating very much. And then I would end up binging later because my body's biological response to not getting enough food is we really need to eat. So then you end up binging and then it just became a whole cycle. And I just felt like I didn't have willpower and it got all into this um, uh, mess. But I think at the core of it, the behaviors were, you know, the restricting and then ending up binging and over-exercising also played a part in it. But So for our listeners, um, in the research that I did, I came across a website called the National Eating Disorder Association. And they had um, five or six different descriptions of different subgenres of eating disorder. Obviously, anorexia, which is the restriction of calories, you know. Um, you know, that's where you're just you're just afraid to eat. You have bulimia, which is binge eating, right? Okay. Um, you have uh, like a subset of that called the binge and uh, binge eating disorder, where you just you just eat large quantities of food in a really short period of time. Uh, and there was another one that came up it was called orthorexia, which is an obsession with healthy eating. So I only eat food that is grown in a certain area, or I only eat food that you know doesn't have you know any like whole foods. But you're really obsessed with a specific style of eating and you won't eat, sometimes even won't, won't eat out. You only eat at home and you just spend more like two to three hours a day kind of trying to, you know, curate the type of food you eat. So it's very carefully, that struck me. And then of course, uh, the avoidant restrictive food uh, intake disorder, uh, which is you just don't eat. You just don't eat, 
right? And um, you avoid food as much as possible. So that just, to me, surprised me with the amount of different ways that, you know, you can come to this conclusion of that you've got a problem. So my question is, how did we get here? When I talk to alcoholics or when I talk about, you know, addicts, there's almost always a story of, you know, I saw it coming for a long, long time. Or, you know what, it started when, you know, this happened to me, you know what I mean? Or I, I noticed that when I turned this age, something shifted. There was an event or a trauma or something like that. So tell our listeners a little bit how, how you came to begin to sense there was a problem. Uh, the interesting thing is that I honestly didn't even believe that I had an eating disorder or an issue until I was three months into my recovery, maybe four months into recovery. Like I actually started recovery before I even believed I had an issue. Um, just based on what the professionals and other people were telling me that I needed to do. But looking back, you can connect the dots and like see like, oh, this is when it started and this is when everything happened. It was probably about 12 years old. I was just, you know, I use the word fat. I, I don't think it's, I think we need to take that word like and take the insult away from it. It's not an insult. It's just a descriptor. People are thin, people are fat. It's just people are short, people are tall. So I was always like, you know, a little bit of a chubbier, fatter kid. And I always heard like, oh, well, you need to lose weight and all this. So that played a role in it. But also genetics, it just kind of runs in my family. And then I have an anxiety disorder also. And so then the eating disorder became a coping mechanism for the anxiety disorder. So it's all intertwined there together. But it kind of started when I was 12 and then just... uh ramped up the older I got. Was there a progression? I mean, do, do, you, do you remember thinking at some point, wow, it started at that age because I was really becoming very body aware, right? You compare yourself to other kids. You know, we compare our insides with other people's outsides. And we feel like, you know, especially at that age, because we're coming into so many new things, we're growing and developing. There's a lot of more social peer pressure going on to look a certain way, to be, you know, like all the really cool kids. And I think inside of us, we also want to kind of be more successful as kids. We're so self-aware, uh, that we just look at that kid. And I can remember there was a kid, you know, that I could play sports and do everything. And I just, man, I just thought if I could be like that, you know, I'd be happy like that, you know, and everybody likes him. And I, I don't feel like people like me. Was that a similar thing for you as, as it started out? It was definitely part of trying to fit in like on the sports teams and stuff. I was never the fastest or the best. And I, you know, always was, the largest kid and I just wanted to fit in more. And so my anxiety played a role in that too, because I had heightened anxiety from the anxiety disorder and then not feeling like I was fitting in. And so the eating disorder kind of, it would calm my anxiety. And then it would, I'd also tried to lose weight through it, even though it never actually worked. Like people think of anorexia and you have a vision of, you know, a thin emaciated person in your head when you think of someone with anorexia. But honestly, I was never, never even close to, you know, a small weight like that. And I struggled with anorexia. Like it just, I never lost the weight. And so I just think that's one of the biggest misconceptions out there about eating disorders is that you have to look a certain way 
Like you have a picture in your head. I mean, I had an eating disorder and I thought that like, (laughs) you know, I can't have an eating disorder because I don't look like that. I'm not in the hospital, you know, getting fed through a feeding tube or something. And that's what people with eating disorders have. Because we could we could see those people and we could say you know hey look they're they're obviously from the outside we can see them and say hey we we see there's a problem there but it's the quiet ones right it's the ones that don't I mean I, I, not to be autobiographical but when I finally came out mm-hmm. as a sober mm-hmm. person people said to me well I never knew you had a problem <laughs> yeah really yeah really I was that good at it right I was that good at it that people didn't know. So with food, I mean, obviously there is one of the things that I would imagine too is is not to be comparative, but there must be events where you got to go to dinner. You know, you meet people, you're invited out to, you know, be a social and food is such an important component. And in certain cultures, if you don't enjoy their food or if you enjoy the quantity of food that they want, you know, or, you know, I call it the grandma syndrome. I had a grandma that (laughs) no matter how much I ate, she kept piling it on because that was her, she said that was her way of love. But I kind of feel like it was a little bit of a control issue too. And I didn't want more food right? I didn't want more food. So did you have any of those experiences? When it comes to like, that's, I think one of the other biggest misconceptions about people with eating disorders is that either they, they hate food, they don't enjoy it, or they never eat. Like you can have be eating three meals a day and you can still have an eating disorder. So for me personally, and like I said, it's so different for everybody, but my personal experience with that was if I knew I was going to have to go out to dinner or go do something, I would just, I just wouldn't eat during the day or something. And then I'd be like, okay, well then I can eat tonight. Cause I didn't, didn't eat very much during the day. So it was a lot of com- compensate uh, <laughs> to compensate for. No, I, I, I hear what you're saying because in the alcohol community, it would be pre-gaming, right? So before we went out, we didn't want to seem like we were the one drinking too much. So we would make sure that by the time we got there, we were had a really good start, right? We were kind of, we were covered. Uh, and so we didn't have to seem like, oh, Mark, you're drinking too much tonight. No, I was drinking the same amount everybody else was, two to three drinks, but they didn't realize that I'd had three doubles, you know, right before I got there, right? So I was, I was, I was ready to go. You know, I was ready to go. So um, as this progressed along for you, I really want to talk more about your journey. So did you sense that there was a problem growing? Did you sense that, you know, wait a minute, you know, this isn't getting better for me. I always talk about the three stages of alcoholism. And that is, you know, first, this is fun. I'm having a good time here. I finally discovered something that makes me relaxed, makes me fit in. I'm good. I don't feel so painfully self-aware. Uh, I'm not thinking about myself and I'm, I'm more fluid in social situations. And then the next stage was what just happened? There was consequences that started showing up. You know, what's that? Why is my car bashed up in the back? Why don't I have any money? What did I text people let? last night. And then finally, it was the total surrender of being completely out of control. Was there a place for you where you felt the control, being able to control what was going on started to diminish and deteriorate? And, you know, was that part of your experience? Yeah, definitely. Like in a different way a little bit, but it's it's all very similar because for me, the eating disorder was, I thought, my way of um, controlling 
being in control. And I thought that I needed more control. And um, when it was probably at its worst in the end of 2019, into 2020, I had what I thought was the most control I could ever have. Like I had stopped binging. I was just not eating very much. I had discovered CrossFit and fallen in love with exercise. And I was exercising for hours a day. I had started actually losing some of the weight and I was so excited. And I was like, this is what I've needed my entire life. Like I'm finally, I'm finally doing it. And then I had already been in therapy for a year at this point. So because I thought that, well, maybe if I went to therapy, maybe that would help me lose weight. Like maybe that will solve all my problems. Like I just thought that was my only problem was that I'm fat. Like that's the problem I have. So yeah. So after um, what I thought was the most control is when it ended up being, you know, I had the least control. I had no control. My eating disorder had all of the control. And I didn't come to that realization until um, March of 2020 was when I began my recovery. So March 16th is my recovery date. Um, I went to see a dietitian for the first time that on March 16th. And my therapist had been trying to get me to go for as long as I've been seeing her. And I finally gave in for some reason and went, I guess I, somehow I realized that, like you said, this just isn't, this isn't right. All of my friends, my coach at the gym, he was saying like, even he was like, "Uh, this doesn't, this isn't right. Like you're not, this isn't right. Um, So it took other people noticing things and telling me for me to actually realize it. Yeah. What was your experience like though? Were you, was it, was it like a, were you finding yourself when you were, you were alone? I mean, were you a, were you a private eater? Is that what it was? Because for me, at the end, I, I didn't drink in public. There was none of that. Was I didn't want anyone to see that pretty quickly it wasn't one drink that was going to do it for me. It was going to be, um, you know, I can remember once <laughs> being with a friend at, at, I think, a restaurant, TGI Fridays or something like that, and the server came up to me and said, sir, I'm sorry, but I can't serve you anymore. And I was like, what? She goes, you've had more than five drinks in an hour. Mm. And I was, what? I did what? Yeah, I didn't know. Yeah. Right. So did you, did you change the way you were, you know, I don't, I'm using the word using, but I don't really have a, the right nomenclature for that. But did you, did you change it at that point at the end? Yeah, it, it definitely um, morphed um, over time. And as I was growing up, eating in secret was one of, that's what I would do. I'd hide wrappers, I'd hide food, I'd sneak. I remember before I could drive biking up to the corner store to get candy and snacks and stuff and hiding it. Um, and so that was, had always been a big part of my eating disorder. And then as it, I got older and it progressed and I kind of learned new, new behaviors, I guess I would definitely like, it became less about eating in secret and more about not eating in secret, like restricting, not letting people know I wasn't eating. I remember the last, the last day that I didn't, I, I didn't eat that entire day. It was, I went to a concert that evening with one of my friends and I remember telling my parents like, uh, oh, cause I live with my parents. I remember telling them, they asked like, oh, do you want to eat dinner before you go? And I was like, no, we're going to get dinner. And I left the house purposefully an hour and a half before I was supposed to meet my friend and sat in a parking lot and waited because I didn't want to eat dinner and I didn't want them to know. So 
that I wasn't eating dinner. So they thought I was eating with my friend and then my friend didn't know anything. She just met me at the time we were supposed to meet and we went to the concert. But yeah, that was like one week before I started. It's curious to me how we tend to use isolated places like parking lot to do the deed, right? For me, Mm -hmm. I would go buy the booze and then I would be that guy that would be Mm -hmm. sitting there looking from left to right to see if there was anybody watching me when I cracked open the bottle in the brown paper bag and drank it, right? Because I needed that one feeling, that first feeling of relief, (sighs) finally. Right, because that was my that was my release. It was never any good after the first drink. It was never any good, right? So, but so okay. So we're fast forwarding now to the place where you're saying, okay, I'm in therapy. I've come to the realization. You know, I'm saying to myself, I'm admitting to myself, the most important person, something's not right here. I'm going to get some help. Then tell me about what, what was going on with your journey at that point, because we've, we've come up to the place where we go, okay, I got to do it. I got to do it. So talk to me about that. Like I said, when I first began the recovery, it was really just to get people off my back. I was like, I'll go through these motions. They're telling me like what I'm doing is bad. And like my coach at the gym and he's like, you shouldn't be exercising, not eating all this. Like, that's not, that's not good. And, you know, my therapist was so concerned. She even recommended like an inpatient uh, program for me. And I was like, I don't need this. Like, I don't need this. I was in such denial, but I was like, I have to do something. Either I have to get better at lying or I have to at least fake it and go through the motions to get them to off my back. So I made the decision to at least like fake it and go through the motions which I'm very grateful for because it took about, I started recovery in March of 2020 and it was probably May when I finally realized that maybe this is, there is something to this. I started to experience a difference in my life when it's amazing how your brain thinks differently when you're actually nourishing it on a regular basis. I think that is a one of the issues with eating disorders and why they why they're, they can be so difficult is because your brain is undernourished. So it's not thinking clearly to begin with. So you have the eating disorder and then you have your malnourished brain and it's just the recipe for obviously not, not thinking clearly. So once I started just going through the motions, eating on a regular basis, what my dietitian was telling me, I had to take you know three months off of physical activity um, to recover. And once my body started healing, then I was like, oh, wait, (laughs) like this feels so much better. Like, why does it feel this way? And so then I started, you know, doing more of the work into uh, digging into why, why, you know, what was the problem and why do I feel better now than I did then when I thought, thought that was what I was supposed to be doing. So it was a little bit of a wake up. We're talking to Rachel Pollock. She's the author of the book, Be Well, Be Whole, Be Free. And you are speaking my language right now. Uh, I believe, and one of the things that I try to share frequently when I talk about what my problem was and the realization of where I was is I had to realize that I wasn't a bad person, that I was sick, right? I had an issue um, with a brain disorder called addiction, 
right? And I went through all kinds of things trying to blame myself for being a bad person. I thought I was a piece of you know what? Why can't I fix this? You know, why can't I um, do what everyone else is doing? And in reality, what I ended up realizing was that I had to take care of the body first. And then when I went into a long-term period of recovery, for me, abstinence from the chemicals I was putting in my body, when I went into that and my brain started healing and started working, got through the post-acute withdrawal, which is the place where your brain is going, what, 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 what? they're sending signals and you're not responding. Or once I got through that long-term period of abstinence, I started feeling better. I could think again. I could, I can remember the very first time, Rachel, where I actually laughed. And I said to myself, holy crap, I just laughed. And I remember that moment so clearly because I hadn't laughed in so long. So long had it been. And so tell me a little bit about the first few miles for you, about what it was like when you started feeling like, okay, I see there's a path here and this is going to work. So what was that like for you? I mean, is there an experience in food eating disorder recovery that's similar to drug addiction or addiction where, you know, you kind of have to stay on a narrow path for a while. You really have to be mindful of, of staying in. I say staying with a crowd of people or a tribe that are like you. That, that get you, that get you. And that often means that you may have to eliminate some people. So what was that like for you when you started your first few miles? You got in the car, you're ready to go, you're driving. What is it? Yeah, when I first started, like I said, I, I was just going through the motions and that was probably one of the hardest parts for me. And believe it or not, I'm thankful. You know, the COVID-19 pandemic is is so horrible and, and all the people have lost their lives and everything to it. Um, but I am grateful because it brought something positive into my life with, if, if the gym hadn't been shut down, literally the week I began my recovery, everything was shutting down. Gyms were shutting down. People were working from home and I was forced to be in my house with my parents. So I almost had my own like treatment center in my house with my parents. You know, they were always making sure I was eating my meals and stuff. I couldn't go to the gym if I wanted, even though in the beginning I was still over exercising at home. Um, but that, that was a benefit to me to get going. And then once I got past that part and like you said, I was able to start feeling like life again and like stop going, just doing the motions. I I do. I remember the first time, like you said, you remember the first time that you actually laughed. I remember, I'll never forget, it was June of 2020. I went on a road trip overnight to Tennessee with my friend. She has a horse in training there and that's why we go. But the people who where her horse was had a boat on this lake in Tennessee and they're like, do you want to come out on the boat? And that moment on the boat, we probably spent like two and a half hours just on the lake and it was in the middle of a national forest. And so it was just beautiful beautiful surroundings. And I had never felt so like, I just felt life. Like it's so hard to describe that feeling of just being present and being able to actually feel. And like, just, I had been so cut off from all of my emotions and feelings and dead, (laughs) like inside It's crazy how just the, that I will never forget that day, that afternoon on the boat with those people and just 
being able to engage in conversation and have fun and laugh and enjoy the moment and feel the sun and not have, you know, worries or concerns. It, it was, that was my first uh, real, like, wow, life, life could be like this. I never tire of hearing that story of people in recovery when they first start feeling and having life again because we're gone for so long and you know we 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 get by with with these little snippets of 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 life but it's not the same as when you are in real recovery and you say wow this is what it's like without that over my head all the time you're not walking with an umbrella all the time you know so the other part of your story, which I think is pretty fascinating, is that you had not done this before, but you decided it to do it during the pandemic, and that was to turn your attention to becoming an author. So you decided that part of your process to go through this was to be well, be whole, and be free, and compose the story. And so this is interesting to me because I also do, I you know mess about a little bit with some writing. I do a, a column called Sober Chronicles, which you can find um, online. But, you know, how did that decision come about? I mean, because that's, that's, that's new stuff. And, you know, where did the inspiration come from? And tell me about the process of writing. It is amazing how life opens up when you're in recovery and you just, life is when you're in either your addiction, your eating disorder, whatever you're going through, it's just so narrow. There's such a narrow focus and in recovery, like the life, like everything is just at your fingertips and nothing seems like it's, you could do anything. It seems like, so I had been journaling was a huge part of my recovery. I journaled a whole lot and it's funny because I hated writing in school. That was one of my least favorite things. I hated it so much. Like give me an essay. I was, no, I don't want to write this. But then as I began journaling and helps with my healing and I also began reading other people's stories. And that was a huge contributor to me realizing that I had a problem and helped with my healing was other people's stories. And I was like, I want to be that for other people. Um, Recovery has made me just really want to help other people in any way that I can get through uh, their struggle. So I decided what the heck, I'll just start writing and I want to write my story down. And if it becomes, I thought, Maybe it become a book. And if not, at least I'll have my story written down. And it happened so fast. I just, the minute I started writing, I just couldn't stop. I, and I knew that's when I knew it was meant to be because it just flowed out of me. Like I would spend just hours, hours writing. And it, I started in November of 2020 and it was published in April of 2020. 21. So, I mean, it just was such a short, short time. Um, and everybody's always like, hey, you wrote it how fast? I'm like, yeah, I wrote it in like two months. Like I wrote it so fast because it just, it just came to me. Yeah. It was, it's, it's just amazing. The, the experience. So what has been the result of that though? Um, have you had people, um, I think one of the best parts about doing, you know, kind of what we do is just talking about 
our recovery is that number one, we put ourselves out there and there's a, sometimes a little bit of a me, but most of the time, most of the time people will come up to us and go, thank you. Um, that helped because of this, or I really liked hearing your message. What has that been like for you with that response for you? And how does that make you feel knowing you did this? It's been very, I don't know what the right word is for it, but it's just when I get those emails, are you surprised sometimes by people when they, when they I, are you surprised like, oh my gosh, these people actually read my column. They, they listened to my, what, what? I forget sometimes, yeah. you know, and it's, it, it, are, do you have the same experience? I see the smile on your face. You must have the exact same experience. Like, oh my gosh. Yeah. Yeah. When I first set up my email account for my recovery stuff, I I would check it a little bit and then I stopped checking it. And, and then I remember I'm like, oh, I should probably check that. And so I started checking it again. And I was amazed to see some of the people, um, especially after my story was in the newspaper, um, who reached out to me. And I just felt so, I guess, honored maybe that they mm-hmm. would share some of their stories or even have questions for me and that they thought that I could have or even just help by hearing their story and validating what they're going through um, and letting them know they're not alone. It's just, I think honored is a very good way to, it just, it makes me feel so special that they, they trust that with me. And um, yeah, one of the other crazy things about it is, you know, all your, the people, you know, Mm. reading your book, like the people you go to church with or whatever, the people, your friends and family. (laughs) Right. So, and it's so funny and they come up to me like, I had no idea, you know, that you went, you were going through all this or another one of my favorites is you should have told me or something. And I'm like, you know, I didn't really even tell myself, you know, it's like, I wasn't even honest with myself at the time, but they're just so sweet about it. And they just want to, want to offer their support. So having everybody kind of be like, offer their support is, is unreal too. Don't you want to answer every email though? Don't you want to just, you know, find a way to, and, and you, sometimes when I'm tired, I just say, let it go to tomorrow and really, really concentrate on answering this, this one email back the best you can and then move on to the next one. Cause it can be a little overwhelming when P, you know, you, you open up your email box and you're like, you know, if you publish something or something new just happened, it's like 42 emails. <laughs> oh, I don't want to do that. You know, but there is a responsibility, I think, for those of us that step up and step out, right? If we're going to be lantern holders, for me, it's an, it's an enormous privilege. And I never really feel like it's a burden, um, but I do want to do it well. So sometimes it takes some time to get back to people. So what's up next for for Rachel Pollack after this? You've come through. You're feeling pretty good. You know, you've got some 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 good, healthy time. When what's what's the next course for you as far as your recovery? What are the the next steps? I am currently working on trying to figure out how to set healthy goals for myself, like especially at the gym. When I first started, you know, CrossFit, I was clearly over exercising and just doing it for the eating disorder behavior and not because I enjoyed it. So having to take a break from that and start back in slowly and build it back up and actually take it step by step and pay attention. Is this something I'm enjoying or is this the eating disorder telling me I have to do X amount of exercising? Um, So that took a little while, but now 
I'm at a place where I feel like I really do, I do enjoy it. And, and that's okay. Like exercising is good. Like eating is good. That's the thing about eating disorders is that is different than other addictions is that they take things that are good and twist it and use it for something bad. So it's like food. It's not something that I need to avoid for the rest of my life. It's not bad, but my eating disorder made it bad. And so I have to try and relearn how do you to do those things in a way that's good and healthy. So my goals have been to try and maybe do some CrossFit competitions. I have a great coach and gym. Um, I feel <laughs> you're like giving them a shout out, but they're no, you amazing. can. It's absolutely, it um, feels good to feel good. <laughs> it just feels good to feel good. Yeah. And our support system, it's okay to call them out. It really is because I, I think one of the things that we 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 have to deal with the most when we go into a, a recovery process is, you know, we feel pretty alone, and we don't really know how to talk about it. We don't know how to share it. And one of the greatest gifts we get when we come through the recovery process is that sort of melts away. We're able to say, hey, this is what's going on now. And today I feel this way. I tell people lately, I've been saying, you know, being in recovery is kind of like doing your laundry. It's not a one and done. You don't get it done. And you don't, you're never to the place where you're cured. There's really no cure. It's only treatment. And you got to stay in it. You got to stay in it. And that's part of the deal. It's, it's a spiritual, biopsychosocial change that happens to us. And now we know what, what the right thing to do is. And we also know when we're not okay. That's what I think I, I take away the most when I talk to people on this podcast is there seems to be a consistent consensus that people really get it after recovery when they're not all right. When they're not right, and they need they need to do something about it. So, so the final question I have to you today, and thank you so much for for being here on Recovery Talks, the podcast. We've been speaking with Rachel Pollock, and she's the author of "Be Well, Be Whole, and Be Free." Um, if you were going to say to somebody, or somebody came to you and said, "How do I know? I have a problem. How do I know?" Right, and or if someone frequently comes to me and says, how do I know my husband's got a problem? How do I know my kid's got a problem? How do you answer that question? When it's someone personally who would say, how do I know I have a problem? The fact that you're asking that question typically means there's probably something. If you're wondering that, then there's probably something that needs to be addressed. Um, so that's usually my first. When it comes to other people, it is so hard to say, I think that they they have an issue or that they have pointing out other people's struggles can be challenging. Um, but signs, I guess I would point to it. Like if you're a parent and you're worried about your child, you know, the eating in secret is a big part of it. And so you know, refusing being like, oh, well, I, I ate at school, so I'm not going to eat tonight or something going out for, there's nothing wrong. Like I said, I enjoy the gym now, but maybe they're doing an extra run when they don't need to or something like that. And just picking up on their little habits. And when you do notice things, don't, don't be accusatory if you're going to talk to them about it. Be, I'm here for you. Is there something that we need to talk about? And talk to professionals. Like they're out there for a reason and I would not be where I am if it wasn't for my therapist and my dietitian, my coach at the gym. Like I would not, like my friends 
and family are amazing, but they just don't understand it like the professionals do. And so I would encourage you to always just seek out the professionals because they're out there and they are amazing at what they do. Thank you so much, Rachel. Once again, we've been speaking with Rachel Pollack. She's the author of the book, Be Well, Be Whole, Be Free, and you can get it on Amazon, correct? It's available through Amazon. Yes. So um, yes. I just want to, you know, say once again, um, you know, you being here today means that someone will listen and someone will get help. And I, I, I want to personally thank you on behalf of all of our listeners and everyone, you know, at Recovery Talks, the podcast for stepping out and appearing here. And, you know, nobody's getting paid a bunch of money here. We're not even making tens of dollars doing this. Okay? <laughs> we're just, we're just yeah. sharing our stories because, you know, what we want to do is, is we want to let people know that, you know, those of us on the front line of recovery, you know, there are people that are lantern holders. There are people that are lighthouses, you know, and, you know, it's, it is possible to recover. You know, it's a long, hard process sometimes, but you can't make it and you can't make it. And people like you and me today, right today, we're, we're still making it. So, I mean, on behalf of everybody, I just want to say thank you to all our listeners for tuning into Recovery Talks, the podcast. Stay tuned for more episodes. Showcase people like Rachel, who is so kind to be with us today. And until then, everybody stay standing and steady on. 